Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart, who will go up to heaven to bring Christ down to earth? And don't say who will go up to the who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. The Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you, Mackenzie. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You may be seated. Grab your Bibles. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll have somebody uh, put a Bible in it because we're going to be in several places in the scriptures today, Lord willing. and, um, And you will be better for it if you read along with me and don't just listen, right? If you are, inter- we are an interactive church, we participate, not just in the question and answer times, but um, also throughout all of the time. That's why we have opened up our prayer time um, to passing a mic around. That's why during the teaching time we have Q&A. It's also why we encourage you to take notes. And, I, and, I, and part of that participation is something as simple as turning in your Bible, reading in your Bible, engaging in your Bible with me as I'm reading. the. I'm going to put my table back because I'll fall off the table the, 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 um, I, I have fallen off that way, so uh, fortunately it's not that tall, but, um, but neither am I. So, hey, so we're just going to jump right into it, but we're going to go back to a familiar um, image. So we're going to start, so, oh, so in your, in your bi- bulletin insert, there was what we call our training truths or our training worksheet, and on the back of that are our talking points, and the first one, we're going back to the dog analogy, yep. Yep, I'm sorry, I, I just, I can't help it. So we're going to go back and revisit the dog trainer analogy because, just, because this is not just a great image for us to remember, like, how do we reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? But that image, guys, that is a great image for how we walk out our Christian lives. I mean, I'm, I am hoping that you are more and more feeling like that dog. And what I mean by that is, it's like that you are like that because because this life is very much that way. Like there are just times where we're going, okay, Lord, I don't know where where are you going? Where are you leading me? What's my next step? Am I going to step on a mine? Like like there's like there's this there's this like anxiety that we can feel. Maybe now more than ever, more than ever, anxiousness and fear are running rampant, not just in the world but in the church. And part of that is because. Um, we, because the world is just getting crazier, also because we are, having, we are inundated by all of the craziness that is happening in the world all the time, and I talk about that. We were not wired to know every bad thing that's happening all over the globe in every moment, and now we do, or we can, and so I want to encourage you to shove some of that stuff away as much as possible, meaning social media, other media, your phones, put it aside, pick up a book, pick up your Bible, um, you'll, you'll just be a much happier, go for a walk, you know, you'll be a much happier person. And so, um, 
So, but it's just like that image is a great picture of not just our misunderstanding about theology, about God's theology, but it's just a picture of the Christian life, like our relationship with the Lord. And so I think the questions that we asked last week, and I'm asking the same ones this week, because either maybe you weren't here, and, and I just think it's good soul reminder for us, what are the responsibilities of the trainer, and what are the responsibilities of the dog in this scenario? So what are some of the responsibilities of the trainer? Go ahead. What's that? Correction. Direction. Okay, direction, and probably correction too, but giving direction, guidance, good. What else? Build trust, good. To know the plan, to know the big why behind everything. What else? What? Walking the dog, like like actually t- like w- like walking with the dog, our withness with Christ. Good. What else? Teaching the dog. Discipline, right? It, it, like, to, for the dog to fulfill its role, it needs to be disciplined. I mean, like it needs to have a disciplined like personality, right? We all we've all either owned or have been around people who own undisciplined dogs. There is nothing more annoying. Frankly, that's true of little people also. Right? There is nothing more annoying than an out-of-control little person who has been taught that their whole world is all about them. Right? And so, and we all know that. We all know those parents. Of course, none of us have ever been those parents that let our kids be those kids. But guys, just, this is an aside, so I'll step away here. This is like, guys, be the kind of parent, and, and young people, be the kind of person that other people want to be around. And, and for all of us, if, remember in the analogy, if you haven't been here, we're the dog, God's the trainer. It's the analogy, right? It breaks down. I get it, but it's, we're, we're more like the dog then that man is like the trainer. Like we have more in common with the dog than that man has with the trainer. I, it's, it's just a reality. Hopefully you're embracing that reality. But guys, we all want to be dogs that people enjoy being around. So discipline is part of it. What about the dog? What's some, what are some of the responsibilities for the dog? Trust. trust. So the trainer has to build trust. The dog needs to gain trust or get trust. Good. What else? Listen. So be obedient. What else? Listen, so being, like being able to tune your, your ear, the dog has to tune his ear to other, the trainer's voice and not the other voices. I mean, think about that. Like, I, I have no doubt that part of why um, some of our law enforcement officers are not here today is because they're working the Super Bowl. And my guess is so are a whole lot of dogs. You talk about people who are a, a mass of people, and that dog has to be so in tune with its trainer that it knows what it's, and it has to know what its job is. Right, good. What else? Anything else? I'm just looking to see what I wrote down. You have to do. You have to, be, you have to actually go out and do the mission. It doesn't do any good to teach a dog to train, like to sniff for bombs, if it won't actually go out and sniff for bombs as people are walking in the Super Bowl. Right? Not that there are any bombs in the Super Bowl. I'm, just my, one of my daughters is there right now, so there are no bombs in the Super Bowl. Um, she's working, not watching. But... Um, Okay, I'm just, so, so I, just wrote, I wrote down for the dog, listen, learn, be loyal. Like our role, listen to God, learn, and be loyal, right? And, and, and then carry out the mission in that. So in a word, respond. In a word, respond to what like the trainer is teaching. 
So one of the other images we looked at was this image of these two great truths, that there's God's sovereignty and there's man's responsibility. And the Apostle Paul, from about the middle of chapter 8 of the book of Romans that we're in right now, from from chapter 8 all through chapter 9, he has been pounding hard this idea all the way from the Old Testament going, God is in control of all things. Now in chapter, now towards the end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, he is going to hit hard the other truth. He's going to say, and we, from the very beginning, throughout all of the Bible's history, we, God's people have always had a responsibility to choose to obey, like to choose to follow. And we're going to look at that, um, and that's really what we're going to look at today. So um, Kent Hughes, one of my favorite Bi- um, Bible scholars, he says it this way, religious people, like the Jews of Jesus' time, have a tendency to complicate the matter of salvation. So people that really hold to a, like a high view of the word of God like we do and people, people that, that often are like, you know, we, we need to be, our, our walk should be reflecting our belief. Like it, this isn't, we're not, we don't believe in easy believism. Come as you are, stay as you are. That is not, it is come as you are and let Christ conform you. That's the gospel, right? That's what we believe. But unfor- the, the flip side to that can be sometimes that we make the gospel really complicated, and it doesn't have to be. He says, Paul will address this problem here. And that's the path, that's where we're, where we're in. So we've, we've been in this thing I've been calling the mystery of righteousness. Now we're getting to chapter 10, the clarity of righteousness. So, God, so Paul is going to help us clarify by showing us that it's always ever been just about how we relate to God as to how we get right with God. So we're, we're going to be in Romans chapter 10, and the, today's message that we're looking at is this, so it's on the, your outline is on the front, it's this the idea of this, the clarity of our confession, and then next week we're going to look at the clarity of our call, and the question we're asking today is, what does our confession show about our faith? Like, what is our confession, what is your confession of, of faith, show about, about your relationship with God, show about the gospel. Another way to say it would be this. When you say you're a Christian, what are you bringing with you in that? When, you, when other people know, whether it's your people, people at school, work, out in the community, your neighborhood, when they know you're a Christian, what are you showing them? And is that matching up with what we ought to be showing them. So there are three points that Paul's going to make here in, this, in these 13 verses that we're going to look at. We're going to pick it up. Um, so it says, he said, we're going to look at, we're going to see, this is what it shows. Where is our righteousness coming from? Who has done the hard work? And what kind of people even confess faith in Christ? So what we should be showing people as we're out professing faith in Christ is, here's where we think our righteousness comes from. Here's who we know did all the hard work for our righteousness. And then, oh, by the way, here is the kind of person who confesses faith in Christ. And I'm not a high, haughty person. I am supposed to be conveying a humble, messed up, broken person saved by grace. Does that make sense? So that's what Paul is going to show us here today in this passage. So with that, let's take a look at our first, our first point. So the question is, what does your confession of faith show? It shows where your righteousness is found. So we're going to start in the first four verses of chapter 10. So I'm in Romans 10, starting in verse 4. We are going to turn to some other places, so get ready. It says, Brothers, 
or you could say brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer for God to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, he's talking, he, he, we left off at the end of chapter 9, he's talking about his unsaved Jewish brothers and sisters. So in his vernacular, it would be, these were my friends. Like, these were my people. This is who I grew up with. And they are as lost as the day is long. Now you, if you're new to the faith, or maybe like you might have unsafe, like, like many of us, unsafe family members, unsafe friends, people that we grew up with that are, that are flat denying the existence of Christ. Paul is saying, I desire, I just, I, and, and he's going to really hit this hard later. He's like, I would do anything to see these, my brothers and sisters saved. For I bear them witness that they had a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. So he's like, you know, I remember how zealous for God I was when I was killing Christians. He's saying, so the way, the way people, um, commentators describe this is the Jewish people were God intoxicated. That's what Paul means by the, a zeal for God. They were consumed in religiosity. But then he says, so they, they had a zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge. We might say it this way. They were full of truth and lacked grace. Right? Like, like they, they understood, the, they, they could quote, or maybe they didn't understand the truth. They could quote the truth, but they never connected the truth of God to the grace of God. And then look what he says. For, so, and, and he says, and this is what it looks like when you do that, or when they did that. Same thing for us. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, so they don't really understand what the righteousness of God even is, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So the problem is, they didn't, they didn't even understand the righteousness of God, and so they thought they could just achieve the righteousness of God on their own. Guys, this is a huge part of our problem today. This is a huge part of your problem and my problem, is that we think that we somehow can achieve like a good standing, even if we, if we believe in God. Somehow there's this innate part of us, it's, it's called pride, that says, I can achieve a right standing with God because at least I'm better than those people. Now, the, the problem with that is, one, it's a misunderstanding of how bad you are. You are not better than those people. Right? That's the re- there, are, there are no those people. The only those people are is the people that are not yet saved and the saved people. There are no degrees of sin. We were meeting with a couple um, this week, and we were talking about that, saying, guys, there are no biggies in sin in God's economy. He did not give us license to scorekeep in the sin category. Your sin is not bigger or smaller than my sin. I don't care what you did. We have a convicted murderer among our membership. His sin is no, that, that sin is no worse than mine. Do you believe that? That's the reality. So, so, but, but, but because we convince ourselves that, that as long as I haven't done the biggies, or as long as I'm better than those people, or as long as I'm what, fill in the blank, somehow I can earn my righteousness in the standing of God. Well, well, part of why you can't do that is there's no degrees of sin. The other part is we have no concept of the righteousness of God. As high as the heavens are above the earth, he is righteous above, beyond us. You can't be good enough. There's, that, that, there's no, that's when, when we talk, in, when Paul says in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what he's saying, the, the problem is, we don't understand just how glorious God is. So we think with a little bit of work, we can get there. You can't. You're the dog. I'm the dog. 
you're never going to become the dude. Right? Only he can make you that. So, turn to John chapter 1, real quick. Keep your finger in Romans. We're going to come back to it. Turn to the left to where we are. John chapter 1. John 1, one of my favorite passages. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Who is the Word? Jesus. He is the He. Now jump down to verse 14. It's our little Christmas passage, right? And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we beheld His glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father. So there's this, there's this, like Jesus is the glory that is revealed. Now look at verses 16, 17, and 18 of John chapter 1. For from his fullness we have all received, and grace upon... What fullness are we talking about? From the fullness of his glory, from the fullness of Christ's righteousness, we have received, and grace upon grace. It's like John is saying, there is so much grace in the reality that his righteousness has been applied to us. It's, it's not just grace, it's grace upon grace, upon grace. For he says... Um, for the law was given through Moses. Now, this is important for where Paul's going to take us in a few minutes. The law was given through Moses. He's saying truth was given through Moses. But grace and truth came together through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is the, who's, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. He's saying no one has seen the glory of God except Christ has revealed him to us. Right? That's the beauty, guys. Our problem is that we, we believe that somehow we can get to this righteous standing before God because we don't believe just how, we don't really believe we're just that bad or that, that much below. And, we, and way more importantly, we don't really understand just how big God's righteousness is. Right? So, um, why the law then? So, why was the law given through Moses? Anybody know? Because Paul's going to go there in a minute in Romans. Why? To what? To point out our sin. You're going to read about it this week in your daily readings, but in Galatians chapter 3, he actually says, why the law? If the law doesn't really save us, if trying to do better, be better than those people, doesn't really save God's people, never has, never will, not the Jews, not us, not anybody ever, then what's the point? The point is to point out the glory of God, and how glorious he is, and to point out how far we are from being able to do it on our own. That's the point of all the rules, right? So go back to Romans. Back to Romans. I should have kept my finger there. Back to Romans chapter 10, and look at one more verse in this first point. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end. So, of, so when he says, remember, when we, talk, when we talked about for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness, we, need, we talked last week or the week before about how we need to be thinking in our heads already now, even though, it's been, even though we've been in Romans for a year, Paul is pulling forward the argument he made all the way back in Romans 1. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, for it is the righteousness of God. Right to all who are being saved, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. He says, For in it the righteous I'm sorry, for in it the righteousness of God is is um is fulfilled from faith for faith. He's or is revealed from faith for faith. So he's saying, so all the way back at the very beginning of this letter, he's saying the gospel is about the righteousness of God. Then he gets to chapter five and he talks about how, hey, since we by faith have been justified, have been made, that's, that word just means made righteous, we've been set right by God, 
we now have peace with God. So when we read in chapter in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law of righteousness, it actually that word there actually means he is the designation point. He is the point of what all of the law was conveying so that because all the law was conveying was God is righteous and we are so far from that righteousness. So turn to your second talking points question and, and, and it will give us a chance to discuss that point a little bit. It says God's people knew the rules, but not the one who they pointed to. This was true before Christ, during the time of Christ, and it is still true today. How can Christianity devolve into religious rule-keeping? And how can we make it more and more about relationship building? So I'm going to ask that first question. How does our Christianity sometimes devolve into religious rule-keeping? I'm asking. Okay, it makes, it makes sense in our head. It's logical to us that there's right and there's wrong. And there is... Guys, understand this. this. This is a massive tension we live in as Christians. So I'm talking to saved people right now. People, I, as saved people, we, 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 have to, we have to have come to believe that there is nothing that we could have done or will do or ever or that, that would either make God love us more or love us less. Like, that's, that's the truth of the gospel. There's nothing we do or don't do that somehow makes God love you more or less. And yet, God very much cares about our obedience to him. He is not indifferent to our behavior. He just doesn't tie our behavior to our salvation. That is one of those mysteries. That's one of those, eh, right? It is. It's one of those moments where you go, how is that possible? But the problem, what happens is we default too heavily, just like with man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, we, we lean too far one way or the other instead of just enjoying the beauty of the middle. We do the same thing with, okay, well, I, well grace covers everything, so my behavior doesn't matter at all. I'm just going to go live my life the way I want. Not true. Bible says not true. Or I better start keeping a list of rules, moral keeping, so that I'm sure I stay on God's good side. We have such a hard time just embracing like the beautiful mess in the middle, which is I, God is at work in me, even as he is saying, work out your salvation. Walk in your salvation, because he's the one walking with you. It's just one of those great mysteries. So, so how else can it devolve? How, so what does it practically look like when Christianity becomes just a list of moral rules? Judgmentalism. Because the minute we start, so was that what you get? So go ahead, Jen. Okay, so, so as we start listing the rules, we start judging other people for not following the rules, right? Here's the scary part even. Most of the rules that we do that with, not all of them, but many of them, they're not even, they're not even his rules. There are rules that we could maybe make an argument for in Scripture. Now, are there some clear blacks and whites in Scripture? Sure there are. But we, take, we, we don't usually live in the black and white. We love the shade of gray, right? Because then we can feel better about ourselves. Good. What else? Showing partiality. Showing partiality. What do you mean by that, Tom? Well, 
So are, did you guys all catch that? So he says, I'm, I'm, I look at other people and I go, oh, so, so it's part, it kind of goes back to what uh, Mo and Jan were saying, this idea, because we have a hierarchy and we're judging them, now all of a sudden I'm going to show partiality and I'm going to be with the people who, who are functioning or acting like or behaving morally like I do as opposed to these people. And guys, that's not just a in the church, out of the church thing. That's a church thing now. Church, churches have all camped up around these secondary and tertiary, like these, these shades of gray area. They've camped up and they're huddled up around people that think and look and act and, dare I say, vote just like they do because they're showing partiality because those other people with that other letter by their name and their voting bo- on their voting book, those people are definitely not going to heaven, right? Wrong. But that, that's the reality. Because we all have to come, like we all have to face, that is part of our propensity and I'm looking at this table right here because this is my family, and we. And I'm not going to ask you for examples, but can we think of times in our past where we have been exactly guilty, probably even of our recent past, where we've been guilty of what Tom was just talking about? Not wanting to associate with those people or those things because they were doing certain stuff. Absolutely, and we need to repent of that like as a family, and we have, and it's still a fight. It's still a fight. Okay, so what's the, let's get to the good part. So how do we make more, how do we make it? Because you hear this all the time. Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I understand what people mean by that. I would encourage you not to say that. Because Christianity is a religion. It happens to be the right one. Right? But what I think people mean is Christianity is not ritualistic. It's not a list of rules which is what most people associate as religious. It's a relationship. What do we mean by that? How do we get there? Go. Being in his word. Okay, so, so one, so being in his word because he is the word. So, so if we're going to relate to him, this, we just read it in John. This is a huge way we're going to do it right here, right? And, then the other, and part of why we do that, Teresa said, because he, this, this helps us see what he wants from us. If you love me, you will obey me. That's Jesus talking. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Again, it's that tension. He cares about what we do or don't do as his, as his um, brothers and sisters. It's just, he doesn't hold our salvation, praise God, he doesn't hold our salvation in the balance of that because he dealt with it all. What else? Share him with others. Why does that help you, Scott, or, or any of us? Why does sharing him help it be more relational? In what ways? I can think of lots of ways, actually. But. It, it certainly keeps your heart and your mind in tune. You have to speak stuff. It helps you remember it more, remember his word more, be closer to him. Uh, you know, when I, when I share something about somebody I love with somebody else, it makes me think about that person. Good. So I, I let Scott took both like both of the things I was thinking of. Right. So one, when when you are actually out on mission together, remember when he said when Jesus says at the end of Matthew, "Go and make disciples." The the verse we really like is the, is the last verse of Matthew, and lo, I am with you always. Well, that lo, I am with you is tied directly to the go make disciples. So if we're not making disciples, why would we expect the lo, I am with you? Because now it doesn't mean he's he's leaving you and you're not saved. I mean what Scott was saying that when when you're on mission, when you're meeting with someone who's hurting, when you're talking to an unbeliever, when you're just trying to tell the barista at the coffee shop that there is a God in heaven who loves her and she's made in his image. And you're, and you're, but you're like, man, and if she says something to me, I have no, 
I don't even know what I'm going to say back, but she does say something to you, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shows up and gives you the words to say, man, there's, there's relationship. That's the low I am with you. The other thing that you said, Scott, that I like so much was you said, because then when I am praying for people, engaging with people, my mind is on those people. Christianity is meant to be relational both ways, this way and this way, right? We're not meant to be standoffish. The whole book of Acts, for those of us that are in the training center doing the New Testament, the whole book of Acts is all about this, from the moment the church, Jesus dies, rises again, 50 days later, he sends the Holy Spirit, and the rest of the story is relationship, like this way. And they're messy, and they're broken, and they hurt, and they scar, and they're beautiful, and they'll make you look more like Jesus, and that's the mission, right? See what else I wrote down. Anybody else have something before we move on to our second point? I would just I would I would ask you to make these mental notes when when you're talking about your like like relation like your your salvation story, do you give God all the credit or do you give God most of the credit? Right? Do you give do you start your your testimony whatever you whatever you think that means do you start with you or with God? If someone were to say to you so how so how did you become a Christian? Do you start with well, I, or do you say, God loved me? How I became a Christian is God revealed to me my need for him. And then he revealed to me his love for me. Now, I get that my, my natural instinct is to start with the word I, but break yourself of that instinct. We need, to, we need to start and end with God. Somebody prayed it during the prayer time, Hebrews 12. How do we run with endurance this race that is set before us? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the beginner, and the ender of our faith, is what Hebrews 12 says. Who for the joy set before him, despising the shame, he's the one who endured the cross. Let's not minimize it. That brings us to our second point. So the, first, so, so the question we're asking is, what does our confession of faith show? So what, how does calling yourself a Christian, like what does that even mean? One, it shows where your righteousness is found. Do you think, do, where you think your righteousness is found? Are you walking around as a professing Christian showing people that you think your righteousness is about you? Because you're prideful and you're arrogant and you're standoffish and you're those people. And, and whether that's you like physically or you... Um, metaphysically, I don't mean like spiritually metaphysically, I mean like metaverse, like, like social media. Does your social media show that you just think you're better than all those other people out there? Because you're posting the real godly truth and everybody else is just going to you know where, right? Or do you go, no, that, that's not who I am. So that's the first thing it does. Then it shows and, and here's where that idea flows from. We realize who did the hard work. So look at um, the next few verses of, of um, Romans 10. So we're picking up in verse 5. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does... That, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So he's... And I love where John took us in the calling passage in Deuteronomy 30. This whole next section, these next few verses... Paul is, is quoting Deuteronomy 30. Now remember where Deuteronomy 30 ended. Do you remember our calling passage? I know, it was, I know it was a while ago, but remember what he said? I lay before you. This is God saying, I lay before This is in the Old Testament. This is 1,500 years before Christ. I lay before you a 
choice. Blessing or curse. Choose life that you might live. And we'll get to how he finishes it here in a minute. But that's the same. Paul is taking it to the same place. He's saying it's always ever been, from Moses on, it's always ever been God lays before us the sovereign God who's in control. He's the one who saved them from Egypt. Now he lays before them and he says, for you to really live in the promise that I've given you, I'm setting before you a choice. So choose life that you might live. And Paul goes on to talk about it here. He says, in verse 6, he says, But the righteousness based on faith does not say in its heart, I will ascend to heaven. He's quote, that's exactly what Deuteronomy 30 talks about. Or that I will descend into the abyss. Guys, all he's saying here is there's two ways of, wor- there's two ways of looking at salvation. He's saying the law way, Moses' way, was, was works. And what, what the works-based religion says is it's hard. And those next couple of verses about ascending to heaven and descending, all that's saying both in Romans and in Deuteronomy is you don't have to do the hard work. You don't have to work your way to heaven. You don't have to run across the sea or to the depths of the sea to find Christ. God is not hiding from you. Paul, Moses says it in Deuteronomy. Paul says it here. He's saying works-based says... It's hard. Grace-based, so righteousness by faith, that's grace-based religion, says it's easy. So he says, but what, what do I say? So he's saying, let me tell you what God's gospel says. The word, that's the gospel, the word is near you. He's quoting Deuteronomy again. This is nothing new. In your mouth and in your heart. That the word of, that is the word of faith, the word of the promise, the word of Christ that we proclaim. Deuteronomy 30. Choose life that you might live. Guys, look at what he's, I, I, now, now here come the verses in Romans 10. Because, so, so if, if it's two ways of getting saved, works or grace. And he's saying, works is hard, grace is easy. He's saying, look at how easy it is. This is how simple the gospel is. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Or that's, that's the same word. It's the dikaiosune. It's the same word as righteous. It's for the one, for, with one heart, one, the, with With the heart one believes and is justified or made righteous, made right with God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He's saying your inner transformation of your heart will show an outer proclamation with your mouth. If you're really saved, you will say so. Guys, this is part of why people from from day one, people have asked, how come you guys don't do altar calls here at what what was then Cornerstone and has been now for the last couple years cross train? In other words, why don't you do the, okay, everybody's eyes down with every every head bowed and every eye closed, pray the sinner's prayer with me. One, the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible is there an example of, of leading someone through a rote way of being saved. I'm, I am not saying that if that's how you got saved, that you're, the Holy Spirit can use anything. The Holy Spirit has used the sinner's prayer massively. I'm not saying it's unbiblical. I'm saying it's extra biblical. So we're not commanded to pray the sinner's prayer. That's all I'm saying. But here's the other part. Here's how, how is that always done? Dim, dim the lights. Bow your head. Close your eyes. Hide. Repeat after me these, these words. Now, if you just prayed that prayer... Raise your hand. But we're not going to ask you to do anything else. And maybe that's even risky. We're not going to ask you to do anything else. Guys, the gospel asks you to do something else. 
The part, the, the, so for me, it really wasn't about the sinner's prayer or not. For me, it, so what we'll say is, hey, if you have questions about what you, um, about what you just heard, if you have, if, like, come to, are all the leaders' names and numbers are on the back of the bulletin. Most, all of us hang out after church for an hour after church. I'm up here all, for an hour every day, after, every Sunday after church. Come talk to us. People say, oh, well, they never come talk to you. I, here's my challenge. It's just too risky to talk to somebody. I get it. Believe me, I get walking into a church when you're like, I'm an unbeliever. That was my story going, oh man, that would be risky. Guys, but understand this. Once you're really regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you don't care. The reality is you will risk, air quotes, walking up to me or one of the other leaders or one of our wives and saying, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? Because that's the Holy Spirit. If you won't do that, I have to question whether it's the Holy Spirit really working in your life because I'm pretty confident the same Holy Spirit that can overcome your flesh to save you can overcome your fear to make you walk up and talk to me. Right? And, and we have to be willing to embrace that. So ultimately what he's saying is, guys, if you conf- so he says, if you confess through your mouth, that, guys, I, I did not know John was going to talk about this, but in, John, in, in Deuteronomy 30, our calling passage, he said he, what, what stood out to John was at the very end of Deuteronomy 30, verse 20, it talked about this idea that that you will do this, you will live this life by believing and obeying. Now what is that? I, I had not connected that until he said it at the beginning of the service. What does believing and obeying sound like in this passage? That with your, look at the very next verse, with your heart, verse 10, with your heart one believes and is justified. Believing, Deuteronomy 30, believe, Deuteronomy 30, 20. Believing, what do we believe? Believe with your heart. With your heart, you believe and are justified. With your mouth, you confess, obey, and are saved. Your inward transformation will show an outward proclamation in how you live, for sure, and also in what you say. That's what Paul's saying here, and it goes all the way back 1,500 years to what God is begging his people for in Deuteronomy 30. He's saying, if you choose life, if you choose me, you will do that because your heart has come to believe in the promise, and you will choose to obey. You'll choose to follow me. You'll choose to tell people about me. That's Ultimately, what it amounts so, so look at or, um, it's a couple of quotes. This is um, by a guy, Douglas Moo. He's, he's probably the most well respected scholar on the book of Romans who's currently writing about the book of Romans. He says this Salvation comes through our acknowledgement to God that Christ is God and, that, and, and then believing in him. And you will only do that if you believe um, you need God to be made right with God. Why do so many people miss this point? Because it does not settle well with the notion of a sovereign God. So if you're a sovereignty of God person, you struggle a little bit with, well, wait a minute, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to believe. Or with the concept of religious self-elevation, meaning I'm the one who came to believe because I'm just smarter, I'm better than those people. It's this tent, that's the tension. But Jesus in Mark chapter one says, repent and believe in the gospel. Those are the keys. Repent, recognize your need for God, and then turn and move towards God. That's what he says. In John chapter six, we were looking at the gospels the first week of the training center. In John chapter six, he says, what, um, the, the apostles say, what must we do to do the works of God? And and Jesus says, here's the only work you need to do. He literally uses these words. Here's the only work you need to do. Believe in his son and be saved. 
That's it. His, he's like, here's, your, here's our only role. This is all God expects of you and me. Believe. Do you just believe? Do you just trust in the promises of God? One more quote from Mr. Moo. He says, the good news is the ultimate is, is the ultimate both in simplicity and mystery. We will never completely understand it in this world, yet it is so simple that everyone can understand enough to truly become a Christian or to follow Christ. So back to Romans chapter 10. So if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in our hearts God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the tongue we are confess and are saved. And that leads us to our last talking points question. It says, the wrestle with the gospel is twofold. First, most don't really think there is, a, there is work to be done to accomplish redemption. So most of the world, outside of coming to faith, they're like, you know what? I don't need to be redeemed. I'm good. But here's the other, other pushback. We, we know that there's work to be done, but we think we are the ones who have to do it to get right with God. But who did all the hard work? I'm asking, who did all the hard work? Jesus, how do we know? Yeah, thank you, John, for pointing. The cross, right? And, and, and Galatians, I, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if, if righteousness, if my being right with God could be done by me doing good, then Christ died for nothing. And he's like, I will not slap my Savior in the face for that. In Colossians, in Colossians chapter 2, he says that he annihilated our sin. How? By nailing it to his cross. He did it. He didn't expect us to do anything. He did it all, and that leads us to our last point. So the question we're asking is, what does, uh, what does our confession of faith show? What does saying we're a Christian mean? Where you think your righteousness is found? How are you living? What are you saying about your salvation? Two, what are you saying about who actually has to do or who did the hard work? And the last thing is, what kind of people confess faith in Christ? And so I'm just going to read a couple of more verses and turn to um, a, a passage that's good, that lets Jesus show us what we mean by this. It says in verse 11, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I love that. He's quoting an Old Testament passage out of Isaiah 28. So even here, Paul's going, This is only, this is Jesus, and the gospel has always been part of Paul's plan. And to prove it, he's not making up new words, he's quoting the Old Testament. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, and, and he's going to push that point in. in um, Romans 11, when we get there in a couple weeks, Lord willing. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on who? All who call on him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Guys, the gospel is exclusive. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is exclusive in this sense. He is the only way of salvation. There are not many gods. There are not many ways to know God. He is it. He said so himself. We cannot call ourselves Christian and say that there are other ways to find your relationship with the Lord. That is holy, unbiblical, heresy, and blasphemy. Jesus is the only way. Only Jesus saves. right? But it's also entirely inclusive in that that call goes out to all the world. And Paul's going to really press that point to us next week when we finish up Romans chapter 10. He says, all are saved. But look at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's quoting Joel 2.32. He's saying, even in the Old Testament when it was God's chosen people of the Jews, even then it was whoever calls him God is saved. 
There were non-Jews brought into God's people even in the Old Testament. It's no different today. So what does our profession of faith show us? Here's, here's, here's the ultimate answer. What do you think about you? What do you think about God? Here's what your profession of faith, your confession says about you. What do you think about you? And what do you think about God? And what you think about God might be the most important thing about you. So I'm going to ask you to, to all of you to turn. We're going to use this um, as our, t- it, we're going to go into our time of response here in a minute. We're also going to um, take, use this as our time of communion. So leave your Bibles open during the time of response, but go to Luke chapter 7. And I want to show you just a powerful scene that brings this point to bear. What do we think about ourselves and what do we think about God? And we're going to finish this up in the next couple of minutes, I promise. So this is, this is a scene in Jesus' life. It's not a parable. It's a real scene, real account. Luke records it for us. I'm in Luke 7, chapter, or Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Which right there says something great about, I mean, he knew who the Pharisees were. So not only did he hang out with tax collectors and sinners, he knew the Pharisees were the biggest sinners of the bunch. There are no big sinners, but you know what I mean. Like, they were the ones that, were, that should have known and didn't, but he doesn't go, oh, no, like, I'm not going to eat with you. He's like, okay, of course I'll go eat with you. And it says, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, which, means, which probably means that she was a prostitute. Other accounts would say that. Other gospel accounts would say that. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, which just means something that was worth as much, probably everything that she owned was in this bottle. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. But now when the Pharisee who had been invited him, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would, he would have known who this sort of woman was that was touching him, for she is a sinner. And I'm, I'm resisting the urge to teach through this passage I have before, but the reason this man knows who she is is probably for very intimate reasons. Meaning the, re- the fact that he knows she's a prostitute is probably because he's prostituted her. And it says he would have known what sort of woman this is. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And just the indignation. A certain moneylender who had two, de- had, two de- had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's 500 days wages, and the other 50, 50 days wages. When they, when they could not pay, he canceled both of the debts. Now which of them will love him more. And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, whom, had, whom, had, whom he had canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, which would have been just the minimal. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which was a big affront in their culture. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, 
which are many, for she, which are many, for she loved much. I'm sorry, her, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Here's what you need to hear. He who thinks he needs little forgiveness loves little. The ones who think they need little forgiveness are the ones that go, those people. Are the ones that are posting about those people. I'm those people. What do you want to say about me? Because I don't know if you know this, but your pastor's a sinner. I mean, I'm a saint, saved by grace. But, if, but, but I, I will walk out of here this afternoon and sin against God. If you're looking for a perfect pastor, find a different church. But here's the thing. So are you. Do you know it? Do you believe it? And then do you embrace the grace of God to cover it? So let's just finish this up and I'll pray. He says, he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And of course, the high and mighty, the religious say, who is this who forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Let's go think about Romans. Your heart, your belief has saved you because your life is confessing what you believe. By being here, by doing what you're doing, your life and your tongue are confessing. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God, you will be saved because by the heart you believe and are justified. By the mouth you confess and are saved. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for that truth. I thank you for the truth that, that you know us all to be broken vessels. The reason you don't expect anything from us is because you know us. And this has been true of the human condition since the rebellion. But just like you did for Adam and Eve, when they rebelled, you stepped forward. Just like you did for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and just like you did for Moses and David, just like you have done for, you did for Peter and Paul. Grace always moves first. Grace always moves towards. And for those of us that are sitting here today as sons and daughters of the Most High God, it's only because you move first and you move towards and we are saved. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of that, that, not, that, that with our mouths, but also with our very lives, we are called to confess you as Lord and Savior, to, to continually remember that we have come to believe in our hearts that you are resurrected from the dead, and because you are, we will be. And then you've called us to go tell other people about that, so I pray for those people. I know there are people in this room right now who have not yet publicly confessed their faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that, like your word commands, that, that if today they hear your voice, it's not, nothing I can do. It's only your Holy Spirit that can do this. If today they hear your voice, they would not harden their hearts as your people continually have done, but that they would step into that belief, that they would do their part in, in the saving faith by believing in the promise of God and by saying so for the fame and the glory of your name that we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.